Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. In Ontario, they announced last year, three-year program where they send money to people. The minimum income thing. So they selected 4,000 people, and then they just sent them money. So you could get up to $30,000 in minimum income. They just shut down the program after one year. Why? It's unsustainable. We can't do it. It doesn't work. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always an honor to be with you and uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, This is your faithful, humble American Muslim correspondent who believes in American constitutionality, our Bill of Rights, the dominance, the predominance of our American Constitution over any theocratic doctrine focused in this program on fighting political Islam, radical Islam, but the underbelly of it, which is Islamism, the belief that Muslims should form parties, should form political movements, should form an Islamic state where they can, or form segments in society that are based in collectivist movements of Muslims based in internal ideologies. So, week to week, if you've heard me before, Thank you for coming back. Thank you for coming back to, uh, I think, one of the few places where we're able to have a conversation about the threat of ideologies that some Muslims, some faithful Muslims believe that I believe is a threat to Western society and is part of the radicalization pathway. And one of the few places where we can have that conversation without fears of political correctness. So a lot to talk about this week. I have to, I just, I I have to start on Minnesota. They had their Democratic primary last week, in addition to Republican, and uh, I'm not going to get into the, obviously, this is a program about reform. So we have to talk about Congressman Ellison and the person he selected to, he endorsed to replace him, Ilhan Omar. We talked about it last program, so I don't want to get into too much of the details other than to say that you've heard we talked about one of the words of the week last time, and that word was Islamophobia. I want to start a new word. Yes, I'm going to coin a new word on this program. Islamistophilia or Islamismophilia. If you love, if you have a passion for Islamism, or you're an Islamist, or you're not an Islamist, but you're just philic, like my father growing up in Syria was considered a Anglophile. He loved Britain. He went to school in London University and was a fan of Winston Churchill, was one of his heroes. He was an Anglophile. Well, if you're an Islamistophile, you are somebody who has passion, fervor, a fever for Islamism. I'm sorry, Minnesota, but you now are hereby dubbed the Islamistophilic state. Oh, you're certainly not Islamophobic, according to CARE. You have just now elected a 
attorney general for the Democratic nomination of your state. Who? Keith Ellison. Let me let me run down his resume for you. Number one, multiple audios and known hate for the state of Israel. Multiple times he represented the interests of Saudi Arabia, the interests of Arab dictatorships and monarchs from the House, from the congressional floor, helping them gain arms, helping spread the ideas and the power of Wahhabism globally from the halls of Congress. And that hate emanated from what? His tutelage as a protege of Louis Farrakhan. He was a spokesperson for Louis Farrakhan. And even after he left and claimed that he didn't, by the way, this is not just from conservative sources for you conspiracy theorists out there who think that this is our version of fake news or whatever you want. Mother Jones had an expose. Mother Jones, the far-left socialist rag, had a detailed expose about Louis Fer- about Keith Ellison and his connections to Louis Farrakhan. So... Listen, this is about the fact that he is an anti-Semite. He is anti-Israel. He is a protege of Louis Farrakhan. He also recently, just a few days ago, uh, uh, three, four days prior to the uh, election, voting day, was exposed as a domestic violence abuser. Now, it was allegations. There was nothing confirmed. But they're pretty strong allegations. Powerline reported on it. Multiple blogs, news agencies, Alpha News, and others in Minnesota. Look it up. Girlfriend that he had, 2006, 7, 8, around that time. The son had posted on Facebook social media posts that acknowledged that his mother, who was dating Farrakhan at the time, who then went through a divorce sometime around that time, by the way, had multiple times beat his girlfriend. There's audio, video, or something of her being pulled off a bed and dragged. These allegations are pretty strong. Democratic parties even asked that to be opened. An investigation. In the state of Minnesota, Al Franken backed down from his seat because of a picture, a single picture of him with his hands in front of the breasts of a comedian or or another person that he was on a USO tour with. So that's a single picture. That wasn't violence. This was part of the Me Too thing. So if you believe in the respect and equality of men and women, and you're a Democrat, how is it that Keith Ellison's getting a pass on this? Third, He's a major fundraiser for Islamist group domestically and globally. He's done over 50 fundraisers for chapters of the Council on American Islamic Relations. He has represented the interests of various organizations of Islamic cooperation countries. He went on a trip for Hajj with the Muslim American Society, which is known to be reported by the Chicago Tribune in 2004 as basically the embodiment, the representatives, the, the actual secretive organizations of the Muslim Brotherhood, all 34 chapters, with enrollment programs called Tarbiya programs and others that are classic, exactly like the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. And he went funded on a trip to his Hajj with them. 
So, along with that pro-Islamism bent, he's also supported Qatar and uh, been a defender of them. He has last, unroofed by Laura Loomer, doesn't have a valid license to practice law in Minnesota. So please, Minnesotans, how shallow is your political bench that I don't even understand how his district continued to re-elect him. I think he served three or four terms. But how shallow is your bench that your attorney general is an anti-Semite, a protege of Farrakhan, a fundraiser for Islamist causes, debated me in Congress and couldn't even acknowledge that political Islam exists, let alone theocracies like the Khomeinists of Iran, the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia, or the Islamists of the Brotherhood. He rejected the entire notion, says there is no such a thing as political Islam, and actually said political Christianity was more of a threat, and said anyone who questions it is responsible for bigotry against his family. That's what he told me. How shallow is your bench that you want to nominate an attorney general whose license expired and can't even practice? There's something wrong. I know you elected uh, uh, Jesse Ventura, the wrestler, but this is worse. This is worse. Will he win in the general? We'll see. I can't even believe that Ilhan Omar, do some research on her, Allison endorsed her to take his seat in his congressional district. And she has posts, tweets, and others that are viciously, virulently anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. Not only refers to Palestinian areas as occupied territories, but Israel as the apartheid state and is very pro-BDS, which is the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. This is not a moderate Democrat. Uh, and again, her personal faith is her own, but she chose to wear a hijab. And where is she on, on women's rights, women's equality? And it turns out there may be even be immigration problems related to her own family. She was married to her brother, apparently, and she has yet to refute that evidence other than to say that when Laura Loomer, when Powerline, when Alpha News and others exposed it, her response was that this is bigotry, this is anti-Muslim Islamophobia. No, I'm sorry, it's the new word. It is actually Islamismophilia, Islamistophilia, not the question why the voters of Minnesota should just simply accept. And how would they even vote her in? At least Michigan uh, uh, delivered a 15, 12-point loss to Al-Sayed in his Democratic primary, affiliated with CARE and others. So please, it is about time, as more and more Muslim candidates relish in the spotlight and try to pull the wool over your eyes and make you feel that diversity is really about proving you love Muslims by voting them into your leadership positions, therefore exploiting American guilt. Don't exploit, don't let them exploit your guilt. Don't let them do that. Reason, look at their issues, and the key is where do they stand on Islamism. Yes, you know what? Just because they're Muslim, you need to know it. When a Catholic ran for president, when Catholics run, we wanted to know, I wasn't alive, but when Kennedy ran, wanted to know if he would respond. When John Kerry ran, they asked him, do you believe the Pope 
is ultimately your final authority. And the American position on that, we love and have a passion for those who love their faith and believe in religious freedom. However, we will not accept, at least most Americans that are not theocrats, will not accept a religious leader having dominion, having control over our political leaders. That is the First Amendment's establishment clause, if you will. It doesn't keep religion out of the public place. It doesn't keep us from practicing, but it prohibits the establishment of religion by government. So please, Minnesota, your Islamist affilia is nauseating. You're an embarrassment to politics, to American rule of law. Feel free to elect socialists, Democrats. You know, however much you may disagree with conservative ideas, that's fine. But theocrats have no place in either party. And nobody questioned. I looked at debates. There was an hour and a half debate, which was one of the most boring things I've ever seen with the other candidates that ran against Ilhan Omar about health care and other things. Nobody questioned her. Nobody questioned her about her Islamism, about her background, about her position on jihadization, on why so, ma- why so many Somali jihadis. She's of Somali origin. Why were so many Somali jihadis coming from Minneapolis area? Isn't there a radicalization problem there? Nobody asked her. This is Zudi Jasser and Reform This. We'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Damien soup on a stick? Yeah, I don't get that. So, but the, the pig you, candy. Hold on, hold on. Stop. You, you, what's the matter? You <laughs> flying this too quick. What are you doing? Hockey put a soup on a stick. What do you mean? You just put the can right on the end of the stick. Yeah. And then you just you pop, open, the, top pop the top and, and you, you drink it down. So what's the stick for? <laughs> oh, not how that is. Can. Oh, okay. <laughs> the morning blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I talked to you last week about that evolving story in New Mexico of a compound of, you know, you wouldn't know it, but uh, by most stories, it's just sort of at the end, they say, oh, they have to be on radical Muslims. What, 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 what was that? Oh no! This was just a a a a a ring of child abusers with eleven kids, and they were radical Muslims. What? What? Radical Muslims, jihadists. The epilogue is going to scare you more if you did not hear. So this is Siraj Wahaj, Jr. I talked to you about senior last week. He obviously. Uh, is not connected to the compound. He may have actually been responsible for helping authorities find his son and grandchildren and others, but it is his family. The apple, as I said last week, did not fall far from the imam. I saw him personally teach separatism, teach anti-Americanism, teach anti-Semitism, teach misogyny, teach homophobia, teach radical ideas that are incompatible with Americanism. So the grandfather has blood on his hands. There's a death of a three-year-old child that was found in there, sacrificed apparently during a ritual for the end of times. 
But the sad part about this case is that nobody's reporting on it. The Islamistophilia of the media is in full gear on this case because they're protecting the connections to the Wahaj family because Wahaj was vice president of the Islamic side of North America, major fundraiser for major Islamic organizations connected to probably many of the care sympathizers that are producers on some of the news channels, especially at CARE, at MSNBC and CNN. But the biggest part of the story this week was Judge Bacchus. Judge Bacchus in New Mexico, and you look at her pedigree, came from San Francisco and appears to be extraordinarily liberal, but yet she was an appointee of a Republican governor, Martinez. Uh, so I don't even, I don't want to go there. I don't understand that at all. Now, Governor Martinez just spoke out this week and said she was also horrified by her decision. So uh, I, I was very glad to hear that. I do want somebody to push her about what was the vetting that was done for this judge. But regardless, this judge released all of them except the ringleader who could not be released because he was being held on a bail from a warrant in Georgia for child abduction and other things, I believe. But they released them all on a signature bond, signature bond, and ultimately $20,000 in addition. So she said she was concerned by the troubling facts, but the prosecutors failed to articulate any specific threats to the community. What? Pictures show tunnels underneath. Guns. Bullets. Kids were starving, but they had enough money to spend on bullets and guns and target practice. That tells you that their priorities are basically suicidal. And the prosecutors presented that there were plans to shoot up schools. Are you telling me that this judge, if this had been a, a, a right-wing Christian cult, that she would have let them go? I don't think so. If this had been the grandson of Franklin Graham or one of the known fundraisers for major Christian organizations like Siraj Wahaj's, Siraj Wahaj Sr., do you think they would have been released? On $20,000 bail, the other ladies and, and th I think three other men that were part of the adult cadre of radical terror cell jihadists that were there, they would have been released with a signature bond and ankle bracelets and said, oh, please appear back in court or you'll be in trouble. It's, it's unfathomable. Unfathomable. What's going on? Well, the defense claimed racism and bigotry that they were targeted because they were Muslims, because they were black, and other other aspects of whatever race card they could pull. Muslim is not a race. It's an ideology. Radical Islam is a political, militant ideology. And then after they were released by this anesthetized or inebriated judge, they were taken into custody by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, I think one or two of them, for violating immigration. Janie Laville, on August 14, was taken in less than 24 hours after judge denied the motion to detain the defendants. And yet, 
despite the terror plans. The prosecution presented that the three-year-old had died during a religious ritual intended to cast out demonic spirits. The ringleader, Saraj Wahad Jr., had put his hands on the son's forehead, recited verses from the Qur'an. Abdul Ghani, the three-year-old, suffered from seizures. Wahaj believed that the boy was possessed by the devil and needed to be exorcised. And he thought he'd come back as Jesus and tell them what to do. And by the way, that is from Quranic scripture, or hadith, I'm sorry. Not from Quran, from hadith. Mustafa Akul has a piece in the New York Times from a couple of years ago that looks at the apocalyptic Sira stories of the Prophet, which many of us don't believe are, are authentic. But his point is that there is nothing more vain than those who believe they are part of the end of times, which thus is the problem of the narcissism of radical Islam. I think that's true. But it's also pathognomonic, as we say in medicine, or defining pathology of a disease, of militancy. And these guys, it proves, were suicidal because they believed this was an end-of-times process. And thus they went off the reservation, if you will, from the grandfather, Siraj Wahaj, who was more of a democratically approached Islamist, supremacist, who, like the Brotherhood in Egypt, some were militant and went to Al-Qaeda, some believed in the political process and engaged in electoral systems. The three-year-old did not survive. You look at the picture of that three-year-old and you can't help it. Wonder if that death could have been prevented. I'm sure Siraj Wahaj Sr. is grieving. We should give him the space to, to grieve, but also we should learn as a community. There is no case, I think, and, and not because there's been obviously cases like Nadal Hassan and uh, the Tsarnaev brothers and San Bernardino and others that uh, many more died and obviously acts of terror militancy, horrific acts occurred, but they don't reach as far to the top as quickly as this case does. And when I'm talking the top, mainstream Muslim organizations that I have and so many for so long have said are Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, thus their apples don't fall far from their original roots, which is political Islam. And it's clear that the MSM, the mainstream media, is doing everything possible to cover for the grandfather, Siraj Wahaj, due to his deep connections to other Islamist organizations. Yes, and as, as I said last week, a father does not own all the sins and deteriorations of his children and grandchildren. But when his primary shtick is about Islam and, and the beauty of the faith and and sermon after sermon after sermon and fundraising for Islamist groups and his separatism when his kids aren't just about the separatism and political domination but are about militancy and ending life and ending times they just went to the heroin and skipped the alcoholic inebriation so it does matter and we need to learn we need reform and then once we have reform against these ideas of end of times uh, uh, nonsense, against the ideas of theocracy, against the ideas of, uh, of suspending the Constitution, as Suraj Wahaj Sr. said should happen with a Quran replacement, 
I talked to you last time about how Siraj Wahaj Sr. was the first Muslim to give an invocation to the U.S. Congress. He was invited by Abdurrahman Alamudi. Alamudi is now in prison for 23 years. His buddy, his sponsor that brought him into Congress, is in prison for carrying $300,000 in cash from Libya. For being involved in a plot to assassinate the king of Saudi Arabia. For being a part of anti-American activity. And especially radicalism and terror activity. I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam. Bottom line is, is there's a conveyor belt of radicalism. The judge in the New Mexico case is an embarrassment to the American legal system. Is an embarrassment. Now, we heard about threats to the court system, to that court building, and to that judge. That is absurd. That is exactly what ISIS wants. That's exactly what radical Islamists want when they call America Islamophobic, bigoted, when we have animals that call and threaten judges. That is not the rule of law. That is not American. That is a degeneration of our system. And that's exactly what terrorists want. They want what Assad does in Syria against ISIS. They want what Mubarak did in Egypt, which led to the ascension of the Muslim Brotherhood. So don't allow them to be victims. Don't allow them to deteriorate our legal system so that the America we know doesn't fight back with democracy and liberalism and human rights and universal tough love, but no bigotry of low expectations. And some of that response was just very saddening. But at the end of the day, Judge Bacchus' ruling is just horrific. It's, it's absurd. Stupidity. No judge should have allowed them to be released. It gives them opportunity to do one last departure. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform. This will be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Let's shift gears a little bit. We haven't talked about some of the lesser discussed countries in the Middle East. And the one that I have talked about a year or so ago as one of the examples of the silver linings of the Arab Awakening. Arab Awakening, as I said, was an opportunity in 2011. An opportunity because I do not believe you can do the brass tacks, the hard work of reforming Islam of modernizing Islam against theocracy, against political Islam in countries that are run by dictators because these dictatorships, the last thing they want is free markets of ideas, of products, of any creativity. And you need human creativity, human thinking, ingenuity, autonomy in order to begin the tough work of rolling up your sleeves and rethinking ossified Islamic texts. So the Arab Awakening, I believe, revolutions were necessary in order to begin that work. And as I 
discussed repeatedly. Most of them failed. But one seemed to have an emerging success. And as I said, it was they're all doomed to fail because the civil society necessary to undergird, underpin a successful liberal democracy did not exist. You need institutions, you need intellectual academia that has studied and doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. And even in countries that had the academic underpinnings to do that, as we saw in Europe, even that needed multiple revolutions and millions died in the religious wars and others. So the Middle East, the Islamic world in general, has a, a very bloody road ahead of it as it looks at reform, as it looks at revolution against dictatorship. And I can't tell you enough, as much as the world doesn't want to see war, the pathway towards democracy is not going to be one in which these dictators, these kings, these monarchs and autocrats and kleptocrats just sort of hand over the keys to the city and the country. And they're not going to reform legitimately. And we've talked about that in Saudi Arabia, and I will do that again in the future. But in Tunisia, Tunisia had the Muslim Brotherhood, the theocrats, after the king walked away and went into exile and said, as much as he was a tyrant, as much as he was a dictator, at least he wasn't like an Assad who wanted, who has taken half the country with him as he stayed in control. At least the king of Tunisia did not have a Russia or an Iran to back him with tens of thousands of soldiers to maintain a genocidal approach to an uprising. So the king walks away, they have an election, and Nahda wins, and Nahda is the Tunisian form of the Islamic party, the Islamist party, the Muslim Brotherhood. They control government for a few years, another election happens in December 31st, 2014, and then Nahda loses, and the secular coalition wins. A weak government arises, and that weak government is a coalition, but what becomes clear is that the constitution that was rewritten apparently is not going to be based in Sharia, based in Islamic identity, but based in Tunisian identity. And a speech was given just a few days ago, and it was all over Twitter and social media in which the president of Tunisia said, and this is remarkable, truly remarkable. He said, religion, Quran, and its verses don't concern us. We approach things through the Constitution, whose rules are binding, and we're a civil state. Talk about a Tunisian state. Having a religious reference is wrong. It's a grave error. Wow, so this isn't... I've even argued that all they need is like America is to say, the Old Testament, the Bible is a source. It's not the source, it's a source of law. And that's what I've argued that Muslim-majority countries should do, is not have the Quran as the Constitution, but have it as a source of law, but definitely not the constitution, not have Sharia be the law, but have it be a source, but based in reason. And this quote, it's one quote, hopefully it's not a one-off, but hopefully it's the beginning of a process of a change in culture, a transformation of a society from in which the Islamic parties and, you know, I express concern because even after the Islamists lost, they tried to repackage themselves as not Islamic but Muslim Democrats. And I said, well, this is part of their taqiyya, their deception, their dissimulation that now that they're losing elections, they're going to rename themselves and do what 
Erdogan did in Turkey. Erdogan in Turkey presented himself simply as an Islamic-identified brotherhood-type party, but didn't call themselves that. They called themselves the Justice and Development Party, the AKP. And now, as we've seen since they've been in power since 2002, they've been slowly theocratizing and making, as Erdogan himself, when he was mayor of Istanbul, said, democracy is like a train. You get on it and get to where you want to go, and then you get off. So they're now proving to be what we always thought they were, which is Islamists, theocrats. Sharia is being put into place. Journalists are being imprisoned. And next segment, we'll talk a little bit about Turkey and what's happening there. But as far as Tunisia, this quote from the president, religion, Quran, and its verses don't concern us. That's great, right? In America, congressmen would say that. He would say from the floor of the house, religion, Bible, and verses don't concern us. It, the values do certainly. It's, this is a religious country in America. But they're not going to argue exegesis. And then the Tunisian president said, we approach things through the Constitution, whose rules are binding and we're a civil state. Yes, talk about a Tunisian state having a religious reference is wrong. It's a grave error. And he said that to an audience of Tunisian leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake, this is the type of thing that should be amplified in the United States. So in my small contribution to legacy in this podcast, I hope that you amplify his words. Look and see if this is actually what's happening. I believe it is happening in Tunisia, that there is a transformation from a quasi a monarchy, then to a quasi-Islamist state, to now a secular liberal state. And I hope that transformation is happening. And I do believe that that pathway through Islamism is sometimes necessary. Iran's revolution, as I've talked to you before, is a necessary pathway through which, so that they don't go back to and they know how to protect against what they came from, which was theocracy, to protect against the power of the ulama, the scholars, the the clerics, the Khomeini's, the men in beards and robes who want to control through Islamic Supreme Councils. Yes, them running Iran destroyed it for the last almost 40 years, but they know what it's like to have it and they'll, they'll never go back, I hope and pray. But they're still being run in Iran by them. Turkey's being run by them. Qatar has handed its control to the Brotherhood. With the royal family, there's complete acquiescence. So, Watch Tunisia. Watch it. It's had some hiccups. It's had some problems. Uh, leaders like um, uh, the head of Al-Nahda, Ganoushi, who, who was clearly a dissimulating Islamist, has tons of quotes that are problematic, even from just the past three or four years, even when he came to the United States, said things that are anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. But, again, they are having a debate. They're creating newspapers and and websites and social media movements. Remember, Tunisia was the Twitter revolution. Yes, Tunisia has one of the highest ISIS recruiting places in the world. I think it's third to Saudi Arabia and, by the way, the United States. So why why that? It's not necessarily because Muslims in Tunisia and the United States are more radical, but it's because of the open media. 
ISIS has more access to it. Saudi Arabia is because Wahhabism, the founding fathers of ISIS, is that ideology. But in Tunisia and the United States, they have access and ability to publish things and move it through with a government that is not very wise to what's happening and performing a huge whack-a-mole program. And I've talked about this issue before. And yet I did a TV spot this week about how terror incidents have gone down by 20%. So should we be happy? And I said, well, it's because command and control is gone in Iraq and most of Syria, 95% gone, ISIS is. But that is just a, a ebb and flow of radical Islam. The ideology is as strong as it's ever been. You'll see increase as the AKP gets squeezed, as Qatar gets squeezed, as Iran gets squeezed, there will be increase in terror. I sadly, strongly believe that. So the only way to win this is to defeat global jihadism, is defeat political Islam and Islamic State identity, regardless of what form that identity has. But there's a lot to learn from Tunisia, and we need to help the development of civil society as we saw there. This is Zudi Jester on Reform This. We'll be back for our last segment. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jesser. The Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. News flash to the media. If you want to make things worse, just keep doing what you are doing. Ignoring half of the country and belittling them. Continue not to listen to the worries and the fears, because that's what you did in the last eight years. You mocked and ridiculed and never had an honest conversation with anyone on the right. The Glenn Beck Program. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, let's round out the week talking about two things. I'm going to talk to you about Tesla and Turkey. Tesla and Turkey. Two different topics. They're not connected at this point yet that I know of, but... Let's talk Tesla first. Elon Musk had, I have to tell you, as much as this guy is brilliant, creative, on the edge, this week he had what I dubbed as the dumbest idea of 2018. The dumbest idea of 2018. What would that be? Imagine in the world of global security, of global threats of radical Islam, what I call petro-Islam. What would be the dumbest idea for one of the world's leading profit-making ventures for alternative energies that puts the Arab petro-Islamic states to shame, into poverty, so that they have to begin to create and use human creativity. What would that be? It would be that this week, as Elon Musk does the infamous tweet in which he says, funding is secured, and now his investors are looking at what that means. He wanted to delist his company from NASDAQ, uh, from taking it public and take it back private, he indicated that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund could fund a go-private plan for Tesla. It's also known as the Public Investment Fund. It's unclear whether it had the resources to do it, but the Public Investment Fund's goal is to diversify the kingdom's investment away from oil. 
Now, beyond the irony, beyond the irony, to give an oil petro country whose lifeblood, whose jugular vein is oil, control over its biggest threat, which is the lifeblood of Saudi Arabia, OPEC, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the petro-Islamist governments that fund radical Islam around the world, to give them control over its primary competition, which begins to tap out the need for oil, which is our automobiles. As I've always said, if you want to look at anyone who's responsible for the threat and spread of radical Islam, you have to be honest and look at yourselves in the mirror before you fill up your gas. That's not my line. That's from James Woolsey, the head of the CIA under Bill Clinton, who says and has talked about the $100 billion being spent over the last 50 years by the Saudis to spread radical Islam. Now, the kingdom is aware that the crude will run out, so it is trying to diversify, and that's really what its fund is all about. But the largest piece of the fund is Aramco. Saudi, the Saudi oil and gas company whose history dates back to the middle of the 20th century. And it's named after the Arabian and, and American oil company. So the bottom line is, is that it's just a dumb idea. Who knows if they have the fund? Now, the, the talk of it has gone down since the middle of the week when this news came out. But I've always said, that one of the strongest weapons in defeating radical Islam, as my grandfather used to say, is to make the Arabs of Saudi Arabia, the house of Saud, have to drink its oil because it can't sell it anywhere. That would then cause an economic upheaval. Why is there no, not a single product that's come out of the Middle East? It's because of petro-Islam. They don't need to. They have fossil fuel, fossil oil that they can sell. They don't need to be creative other than technology and how to transport it, how to clean it, etc., etc. Dumb idea. I hope it doesn't go through. It'd be like Ford Motor Company in the Cold War deciding to allow the Yugo and Zrastiva, the, the company that made it, have controlling or significant interest in Ford Motor Company. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? Not only because it's a horrific car, but it was a totalitarian country behind the Iron Curtain. So, last, I want to talk to you about Turkey. This week we saw President Trump kick in doubling of tariffs on the Turkish government. He cited the plight of Pastor Andrew Brunson who's been in Turkey, had been in Turkey for 23 years, part of a Presbyterian evangelical movement, church movement, not that large. Has a significant following, but not that large. But he's a symbol, just as Otto Warmbier was in North Korea, a symbol of a much deeper, deeper problem with religious freedom, with, with liberalism, and in Turkey, against Islamic control. He was taken hostage after 2016 in order to divert attention away from the Turkish government's role in what we, many of us, thought was a fake coup attempt. He, uh, or the Erdogan cronies, uh, 
and the regime blamed it on the Gulen movement, and Gulen is also a leader of a movement. Uh, some feel it's a cultish movement, but it doesn't seem to be as much of a threat. It's sort of a neo-Islamist threat uh, as Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, but regardless, he's been exiled in Pennsylvania and the Poconos for decades. Now, whether that was fabricated or not, some of the folks who were swept into arrest included Pastor Andrew Brunson, who they said was acting as a terrorist and acting in espionage on behalf of the coup. And those charges are nonsense. They're, they're uh, bizarre, fabricated, whatever you want to call it. Bottom line is, is they are abusing and torturing a pastor. And I think President Trump, to his credit, contrary to what President Obama did, is, is using the pastor's case in order to push the Turkish regime and the world into understanding what exactly is happening within Turkey. And the media went ballistic. The MSM saying, the, the mainstream media, so-called mainstream media, saying that we have basically all but declared war on Turkey and uh, that uh, we are poking them and there's no need for this type of harsh action and this is not diplomacy, yada, yada, yada. And it's interesting, these journalists don't seem to care that most journalistic nonprofits and activist groups have said that Turkey has been the worst regime in the planet for the imprisonment of journalists and the inability to get facts out. They have now shut down operas, art exhibits, and significant media arms unaffiliated or contradictory or not in line with the regime. Thousands upon thousands of journalists, tens of thousands of academicians, and a cleansing of the military has happened in the last two to three years under Erdogan, who now is going into his eighth, sixteenth year of power. This two-bit dictator, who's running clearly a theocracy, a cultish theocracy after his under his tyranny has asked all to surrender. Now we're seeing the lira tank, not just because of the tariffs that President Trump has invoked by doubling them, but because of its weakening position in the region and with Europe. He's asked for bailing out from, from Russia and from other European countries. This weakening of the Turkish economy could be key, as we saw in Iran's revolution, to beginning a real revolution in Turkey against its regime. But hopefully President Trump and his administration is going to be in for the long haul, and it certainly appears that they are, as we hear clear verbiage from National Security Advisor John Bolton, Secretary of State Pompeo, Ambassador Haley to the UN, clear synchrony of message that Turkey is a bad actor. They've continually fed the Iranian theocracy, anti-American interests. They fed Qatar. They have helped them bypass the blockade. They fed ISIS radicalization in Syria. They have been a bad actor in the region. And I hope the next step is to begin the process of, of suspending them, if not removing them from NATO. NATO is about secular democracies. It's not about Islamists. It's not about advancing a neo-Ottoman wish and dream of Sheikh Erdogan.
the spread of Islamism into Europe is part and parcel because of the blind migration of millions through Turkey from Syria. And Turkey's, by the way, its absorption of a half a million, if not a million Syrians is not all about humanitarian. Yes, there's been some great humanitarian work done on the refugee camps, etc., but it is about changing the demographics in Turkey. The Kurdish threat in Turkey is significant. And the best way to marginalize the Kurds is to bring in an influx of Sunni Syrians that were ejected from Syria in the genocide of the Assad regime. And we've seen what the Assad regime has also done to the Kurds in Syria. Erdogan would like to do nothing less than what Assad is doing to the Kurds. And yet he declares them terrorist groups. A lot going on in Turkey. Pay attention to it. Reform. You know, one of the greatest uh, scholars I like to read is a young guy by the name of Mustafa Akil, who wrote a book about liberty and Islam. He's a professor in Turkey. Uh, I think Turkey, if it comes back to its secular roots away from the AKP, has a version of Islam that has a lot to be learned from. But the original secularists from the Ataturk time on were hyper-nationalists, and they suppressed the ability to reform and read the Arabic Qur'an that's necessary for reformation. So part of that fueled the underground nature of the AKP and its Justice and Development Party. So, again, the process of going through a period of Islamist control may be necessary in order for the society to begin to have an opening of an idea and debate against the Islamists that are a threat to the control of their society. A lot to talk about week to week. Thank you again for joining me from the bottom of my heart. I hope you got something that you were looking for. If not, hope to see you again next week so you can get more on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.